Hello and welcome to Folklore of the Universe, the podcast which will take you on a voyage of discovery. I'm your host, Kyle. This is episode 30, Big 3-0. And for this one, I'm going to do kind of a special thing. Not really a special thing, but more of a new thing, which we haven't really done before, and it's been kind of lacking throughout the show so far, but we're adding it in now, so better better late than never, right? And what I'm going to be doing, this new thing, is um, I'm going to be looking at, in this episode, a different subsection of folklore, which we haven't looked at before. A lot of the stuff we've looked at have been um, folklore from places where they've been inhabited by the same culture for a very long time. Like Irish folklore, those stories go back a long ways, or Chinese folklore, Japanese, or... A lot of this, a lot of the ones we've looked at, there are the traditional cultures of that area, so the stories go back for a very long time, or at least passed around through trade routes. But there's a lot of folk tales that have sprung up in the New World during colonial times. Like in uh, the United States, there's a lot of folklore stories and tall tales, and the same's been true for other colonial spaces as well. Because, like we've said, a lot of folk stories are around for um, explaining things, which don't really make sense. And when a lot of colonists moved to new areas, they encountered new creatures and new environments which they didn't really understand, so they came up with folk stories and folk monsters to explain them. Also, you have this huge mixing of cultural ideas, because you have the colonists, and then you have the indigenous peoples, and a lot of times in these colonies, they brought over slaves from Africa who brought their own native culture with them. So a lot of different cultures blended together in these colonial areas to create these new stories. So this episode is going to be dedicated to those. What we're going to be doing in this episode then is we're going to have a story from the United States from New England. We're going to have a French-Canadian one, and we're going to have a Mexican folk story. And then for our Monster of the Week, it's going to be a Brazilian one. So we capture the four major colonizing forces in the Americas. Uh, Spanish, Portuguese, French, and British. And with that, let's get started. So first up, like I said, we've got our Monster of the Week from Brazil. This is called the Curupira. The name Curupira comes from the Tupi language, the Tupi being one of the indigenous people of what is now Brazil. And that word was Curupir, which meant covered in blisters. The Curupira is depicted as being a hominid. It walks on two legs, looks pretty much like a person, but it's covered in this bright red or orange hair, sort of an orangutan vibe going on. And also, its feet are facing around backwards, so it leaves all its tracks backwards, which is a way of confusing people trying to follow it, so it throws hunters and trackers off the trail. And if that doesn't do enough to confuse people, it can also create little illusions or do this high-pitched whistle, which will scare people or drive them insane. Overall, this all sounds pretty intense. It sounds like a pretty hostile figure, but what it does is it only attacks people who, uh, hunters or poachers who take too much from the forest, or hunters or poachers who hunt animals who are taking care of their young. So it's sort of a forest guardian who looks after the animal population and makes sure people are respecting that and not being too greedy. Overall, then, I really like this. I'm a big fan of the whole protect the forest vibe, uh, the whole tree beard energy. Because you, you should protect the forest, and uh, if animals or spirits want to do that, then good for them. They're just protecting their home from people, because people can be kind of shitheads sometimes. It's a true fact. Also, the Kuropiras will ride around peccaries, which are these little rainforest pigs, and that's just adorable. Like, who can't, who can't like that? Culture-wise, this is where it gets really interesting, because here we see this blending of cultures. Because the name Kuropira comes from an indigenous word, but its uh, actions and its design blends motifs from European and African folklore, 
and uh, how they often depict fairies in both those places. So we can see these multiple cultures flowing together to create the Kurupira, so something that can only really arise in its complete form from this cultural mixing ground, which is quite cool. Of course, it'd be a lot more cool if this cultural mixing ground wasn't based on conquest and oppression and slavery, because that is the sad thing about these new colonial cultures, is that there were pretty shitty places uh, from everything that was happening and being done by the colonizers, but you can't change history, only learn from it, so that's, that's where we are now. On that cheery note, let's move on to our stories now. Our first story is from the United States, specifically from New England, ultra-specifically from New York. This story is called The Fifty Cent Piece. There is a story told in Troy and Albany about a couple returning home from a trip to New England. They were driving home in a carriage and were somewhere near Spiegeltown. When the light failed, they knew they would have to seek shelter for the night. The husband spied a light through the trees and turned their horse into a small lane leading up a hill. A pleasant little house stood at the crest, and an old man and his wife met the couple at the door. They were in nightclothes and were obviously about to turn in, but they welcomed the travelers and offered them a room. The old woman bustled about making tea and offering freshly baked cakes. Then the travelers were shown to their room. The husband wanted to pay the old couple for their lodgings. The old lady shook her head, and the old man refused any payment for such a small service to their fellow New Yorkers. The travelers awoke early and tiptoed out of the room, leaving a shiny 50-cent coin in the center of the kitchen table where the old couple could not miss it. The husband hitched up the horse and went a few miles before they broke their fast at a little restaurant in Spiegeltown. The husband mentioned the nice old couple to the owner of the restaurant. The man turned pale. Where did you say the house was? he asked. The husband described the location in detail. You must be mistaken, said the restaurant owner. That house was destroyed three years ago by a fire that killed the Brown family. I don't believe it, the husband said flatly. Mr. and Mrs. Brown were alive and well last night. After debating for a few more minutes, the couple and the restaurant owner drove the carriage back out of town towards the old Brown place. They turned into the lane, which was overgrown with weeds, and climbed the hill to the crest. There, they found a burned-out shell of a house that had obviously not sheltered anyone for a long time. I must have missed the track, said the husbands. And then, his wife gave a terrified scream and fainted into his arms. As he caught her, the husbands looked into the ruin and saw a burnt table with a shiny 50-cent piece lying in the center. The End this is a particular subset of ghost stories, which is pretty popular in the United States. They sort of took off, where the ghosts pretend to be alive, and they're really friendly and help someone out, but then they go back and find out that they're actually a ghost the whole time. These sorts of ghost stories have even followed us into the modern day. There's sort of an iconic story where there's a hitchhiker who's sort of lost out on the road, it's cold, and a trucker picks them up and takes them down to the diner, gives them a bit of money, he just says, oh, no, tell them Big Al sent you, then drives off into the night. And then the hitchhiker goes inside, and they pay for some food and a drink, and they mention that. And the uh, diner owner is like, oh, yeah, Big Al, he, he died a while ago trying to, you know, avoid a crash with the school bus or whatever. But he still helps out people on the road every now and then. So it's, it's the same sort of story where this ghost is still friendly, still around, still helping people, but pretending to be human. Presumably not to freak people the fuck out, because if you knew there were a ghost, you'd be like, what's your, what's your deal? Are you really friendly? 
Are you actually a Casper-type friendly ghost, or are you Drake Me to Hell, uh, Hamlet-type ghost? What's your deal? It's always important to know what type of ghost you're dealing with. You always have your ghost cyclopedia on hand. Top tip. Another detail you might notice about these stories is there's always some sort of proof that the person was a ghost. Like in this one, they leave the coin on the table, and the husband was even doubting that this was the same house until they saw the coin there. So you always have to have that verification that, yes, this is actually a ghost story. Yes, they were ghosts. Here's, here's the evidence. Fact. Also, another little fun tidbit is um, there's this bit where the wife faints when she sees the coins. And you've probably seen a lot of the things of women fainting in, like, old stories or old movies and wondered what the hell is up with that because people don't really do that. That's not how people work. The reason for this is that women used to all wear corsets, or at least upper-class women did. And corsets are like these horrible vice grips. Uh, they're like Chinese finger traps, basically, that go around your body. And what they did was they were so tight they would restrict airflow. So if a woman saw something shocking, they would increase the heart rate. She wouldn't be getting enough oxygen in her blood, which would cause her to faint. So it was actually this sort of nasty medical complication that arose from wearing these things. So that's why that happens, and then once corsets went out of style, this obviously stopped happening. That was a fun little American ghost story, but now it's time to move on to our next story, our French-Canadian one. This story is called The Devil and the Werewolves. Now there was once a man named Jean Dubrois who never did a lick of work, but his house and his barn and his crops were still the best in the whole land. This puzzled people, since Jean had no family, no hired men to help him. No one could figure out how he managed to have the best trapping lines in winter, and have fences and barns in perfect repair at all times, with no one working his farm. Odder still were the reports of a roaring sounds that came from Jean Dubrois' property late at night when good, God-fearing people should be sleeping. His neighbors started avoiding the place, and folks in town would hurry to the other side of the road rather than meet Jean when they saw him coming. One night, Dubrois' next-door neighbor, Alphonse, had a bit too much to drink. Alphonse decided he would dare the strange noises, take a shortcut across Dubrois' land to get home. As he was weaving his way through the fields, he heard a loud roaring noise from overhead. Alphonse threw himself flat on the ground, saw a huge canoe flying over him. The canoe landed on the ground in the clearing next to the Dubois house, and the devil jumped out with a whip in hand. At the sight of the devil, Alphonse gasped and rolled under some shrubs at the edge of the fields. From his hiding place, he heard the devil shout, Come out of the canoe! and snaps the whip at the occupants. Twenty creatures with shaky coats of wolves, but the upright walk of men leapt from the canoe. Alphonse recognized them immediately. They were werewolves, called Lugaru, men who had neglected their religious duties for so long that they had fallen under the spell of the devil. As the Lugaru began plowing and mending fences and doing all the daily chores on the farm, Dubrois came out of his front door to talk and drink with the devil. Alphonse knew then that Dubrois had sold his lazy soul to the devil in exchange for the werewolf's work on his farm. Alphonse lay trembling under the bushes, praying the devil and his minions wouldn't find him. At last, the devil and the Lugaru jumped back into the flying canoe and flew away. As soon as it was safe, Alphonse hurried to the local priest to report what he had seen. When he heard about Dubrois' evil visitors, the priest came up with a plan to rid the neighborhood of the devil. While Dubrois was in the town the next day, the priest sent Alphonse and several of the parish men to Dubrois' farm with buckets full of holy water. 
the men sprinkled the holy water over Dobra's house, his outbuildings, and all of his land. Then the men hid themselves in the bushes to keep watch. It was midnight when the devil and the Lukuru came flying to Dubra's farm in the huge canoe. They landed in the clearing next to the house, the devil leapt out of the canoe. As soon as his foot touched the holy water sprinkled on the ground, the devil started leaping about and shrieking in pain and rage. The werewolves were frightened and fled away from the canoe. The devil was furious. He believed that Dubra was trying to save his soul by driving the devil away with holy water obtained from the priest. The devil ran to the house, pulled Dubra right out of his bed. He dragged Jean Dubra outside, threw him into the canoe, and flew away in a blast of fire that scorched the ground for many meters. The men of the parish collected the werewolves and brought them to the priest. The priest pricked each one with a knife, which is the only way to turn a Luguru back into a man. The restored men fell to their knees and begged the priest to forgive them for neglecting their religious duties. From that day on, the men were faithful to their parish, never more did any fall under the devil's spell. But Jean Dubras was never seen again. The End There's a lot of fun things to unpack in this story. Uh, first off, we've got this deal with the devil motif, which is pretty common in European folklore. It's not just the devil, it just deals with supernatural entities in general. Like sometimes it's with fairies or elves or whatever in the goddamn hell Rumpelstiltskin is. So there's lots of dealings and goings-ons, and they don't always end the same way. Sometimes people trick whoever they deal with. Sometimes they get captured and they have to complete the deal. So it's a um, little, little bit of both. Could go both ways. Sometimes works out, sometimes does not. This particular motif of uh, someone being extremely prosperous through shady means is also sort of a common one. Sometimes it's through deals with the devil, like in this one. Sometimes deals with the fairies. Sometimes they're just a pirate. They're like luring ships their doom by pretending to be the lighthouse or snapping the lighthouse out. So, sort of common thing. This probably arose just out of people being jealous, or envious rather, of other people's fortune. Like maybe one farm has uh, slightly better soil than another, so it's got better crop yields, and everybody's like, well, what the shit, they gotta be doing some sneaky stuff with demons, or otherwise, why else would they be doing so much better? So then people got all up in arms about that, and then these stories naturally arose out of that sort of uh, envy. Because it is envy. Jealousy is when you're worried someone's going to take your shit. Envy is when you want someone else's shit. Uh, fun fact. We also have this fun little tidbit about the devil riding around in a flying canoe, which has uh, really interesting origins. It comes from two places. First is from this old French legend about this man who loved to hunt so much he skipped his uh, church service, so he was punished to forever fly about the skies on this eternal hunt. Sort of like a wild hunt type thing, but slightly different. And that got mixed up with indigenous stories in French Canada about a flying canoe. So these got mixed together, and then canoes in general become associated with French Canadian culture, because they were really handy up there. And all this got mixed together to the devil flying about in a flying canoe which actually shows up in a couple of French-Canadian folk stories. Which is pretty cool, because a flying canoe is one hell of a ride. No pun intended. It was a little intended. Then finally, we've also got the werewolves in this story, who in this one, they're portrayed as people who haven't been diligent enough in their church-going and got turned into these monsters, but werewolves have really complex origins in European folklore, and sort of a wide range of interpretations for what they are exactly and how they operate. One really base-base route is from European fear of wolves in general, because like we've discussed before, wolves are really common bad guys in European folktales, 
and because they would attack livestock, occasionally attack people, so people really did not like them. So it would make sense that you'd get these stories arising of wolf men or wolf monsters to make the wolves extra scary, as if they weren't enough already. The modern idea of werewolves, though, of people turning into wolves, didn't really take off until the 14th century, though, so it is more recent. A lot of inspiration from these werewolves seems to come from uh, Germanic traditions, Germanic pagan traditions, rather, from the Vikings especially, because some Viking warriors would dress in wolf pelts when they went into battle, and would fight with such savagery and ferocity, the whole berserker aspect, that people thought that they were transforming themselves into wolves, and they themselves too probably thought that they were driving strength from the wolf and embodying the wolf spirit. So you get this idea of men turning themselves into wolves to go into battle, and gradually that sort of caught on to start explaining a wolf attacks or people acting oddly, and this just picks up and spread in the popular imagination of the time. And it got to the point where there were actually witch trials to find werewolves, or sometimes finding werewolves was a part of regular witch trials. So people did believe this, and they did try and seek these uh, entities out and kill them. Of course, it's just regular people they were killing, but that's, that's how it goes, I guess. As for becoming a werewolf, the whole being bitten by an existing one didn't come about till later. Originally, people thought that putting on a wolf skin would turn you into one, so pretty simple. Or some magic rituals would do it, or drinking water out of an animal footprint or out of a tainted spring that's got some magic power in it, that would turn you into a wolf. Uh, or then, like in this story, there's just making a deal with the devil or being cursed by the devil to turn into a werewolf. So these were the sort of common ways, and we can see in this story that this culture leans more towards the making deals with the devil or falling under the devil's power in some way. Then we've got the name Luguru, which uh, if you've been to Louisiana or for, from that area, you might be familiar with the Ruguru, which is this folk belief there, because Louisiana has got a Cajun population who are from French colonists, and there's this idea of the Ruguru, which is this werewolf monster which lives out in the bayou. So it's cool how they sort of popped up in different places, but were brought by the French still in both cases, but sort of went different ways too, because the Ruguru is more associated with witchcraft than with... I mean, witchcraft is also associated with the devil, but it's less of a person under this horrible curse and more of just this monster. Overall, quite a lot of cool little things in that story to unpack. A shit ton about werewolves. My god, I hope I never have to talk about werewolves again. Uh, if they ever come up, in the future, I'm just going to refer back to this episode because I don't want to do this every time. But now it's time to move on to our last story of the episode. This one, like I said before, is a Mexican folk story. This is called The Bells. There once was an evil priest who did not fear God or man. His duties for the church included counting the offerings and ringing the bells to summon people to mass. But his heart was filled with greed, and he began to take advantage of the good people of his parish. The priest stole money out of the offerings to keep for himself, and when he had filled a chest full of gold, he killed a man and buried him with the chest so the murdered man's ghost would guard it. Anyone who tried to dig for the treasure would be devoured by the skeleton of the murdered man. The evil priest planned to return to Spain with his ill-gotten treasure, but he fell ill with a fever a week before his ship was scheduled to leave. On his deathbed, the priest repented of his crime. He swore to his confessor that his soul would not rest until he'd returned the gold to God. The priest died before he could reveal the place where the treasure was buried. As he gasped out his last breath, he said, Follow the bells. They will lead you to the treasure. 
The padre who attended the dying priest did not heed his words, but the sweeper who was working in the hallway at the time of the evil priest's death was struck by the notion of buried treasure. He was very poor and wanted a better life for himself and his family, so the sweeper determined to take the treasure for himself. Each night for a week, he took a shovel and dug in the monastery gardens, searching for the priest's treasure. He found nothing. One night, the sweeper was awakened from his dreams by the sound of the parish bells ringing out loudly in the darkness. He leapt to his feet, fearing some emergency, and then realized that his wife and children had not stirred in their beds. Remembering the evil priest's last words, the sweeper felt sure that the mysterious ringing of the bells was for his ears alone to lead him to the treasure. Taking his shovel, the sweeper followed the sound of the church bells up and up into the hills. He was gasping for breath when he reached the source of the sound. He was on a wide ledge overlooking the valley. Two trees guarded the spot, and it was beside these trees that the glowing, ghostly church bells hovered. Taking his shovel, the poor sweeper dug a deep hole among the roots of the trees. After several moments, his shovel hit something hard. Eagerly, he swept the dirt away from the object and found a small chest. He hauled it out of the ditch with trembling hands, placed it on a rock, and broke the lock with the edge of his shovel. When he opened it, piles of yellow gold met his dazzled eyes. He gathered up a handful of coins, reveling in the weight of so much money. The coins were cruel to his touch, he felt the smoothness of the metal as he rubbed the coins between his fingers. And that was when he heard the moaning. Looking up, the sweeper saw the skeleton of the murdered man whom the evil priest had buried with the treasure. It was rising out of the pit under the trees, eye sockets glowing with blue flames. Mine! The skeleton intoned, stretching his bony arms towards the sweeper. Mine! The sweeper screamed in terror and leapt away from the box of treasure, dropping the coins that he held in his hands. He ran down the hill as fast as he could go, the skeleton in hot pursuit. Behind him, the bells began to ring again as he fled for his life from the ledge. The sweeper kept running long after the sounds of pursuit ceased, did not stop until he reached his home. It was only then that he realized he had left his shovel back with the buried treasure on top of the hill. It was an expensive shovel, and he could not afford to lose it. Waiting until daylight, the sweeper went reluctantly back up into the hills to retrieve it. When he reached the ledge, there was no sign of the skeleton, the chest of money, or the hole he had dug the night before. He found his shovel at the top of a tall tree, whose first branches began nearly twenty feet above his head. The skeleton must have placed it there after it chased him down the hill, he decided grimly, knowing that there was no way he could retrieve it. Turning sadly away, the sweeper's eye was caught by a gleam in the bushes near the rock where he had placed the treasure chest the night before. Carefully, keeping his eye on the place where the skeleton lay buried, the sweeper felt around the rock until his hand closed on two gold coins that the ghost had missed. Casually, he put the coins in his pocket and hurried from the ledge. When he got home, the sweeper put the coins into a sock and hid it under the floorboard for safekeeping. The sweeper never went back to the ledge to retrieve the evil priest's buried treasure, though sometimes he was still awakened by the mysterious sound of the bells. He knew it would take someone more pious than himself to banish the ghost of the murdered man and reclaim the money for God. But he did use the gold coins to send his eldest son to school, and with the leftover change, he bought himself a new shovel. The End a big part of Spanish colonization in the New World, and something that crops up in a lot of folk stories, especially from the earlier colonial time, was gold. 
because there's these huge cities of the uh, Aztecs and the Inca with loads of gold treasure. And there's sort of this whole golden fervor took over where loads of conquistadors came over seeking for their own treasure trove. And a lot of uh, the ships went back to uh, Spain bringing all the gold and silver back. So there's piracy and buried treasure and all that romantic stuff like Pirates of the Caribbean and swashbuckling treasure hunt adventures and all that jazz. So this whole idea of buried treasure and secret treasure hoards crops up a lot. But of course, Spain was also very, very, very Catholic when it was doing all this. So there's this whole idea, too, of being pious and putting God first and holiness is better than gold, in theory, if not in practice. And the sweeper embodies this piousness and ideal non-greediness because when he gets the gold, all he does with it is buys himself a new shovel to replace the one he lost and send his kid to school, both of which are pretty noble and not really greedy things. They're fairly selfless act, sending his kid to school is, and then buying himself a new shovel, that's just, you know, fair trade. So he is definitely the moral, moral ideal to follow in this story, not the priest. The priest is uh, a no-no. There's also this really fun necromancy aspect where the priest uh, uses dark magic to curse the skeleton to guard his treasure for him, which is pretty damn good defense systems. Like, screw home security, like, alarms and doorbell buzzer securities and cameras, get a cursed skeleton to guard your house. That's That'll do it. That'll scare everyone away. But besides all that, there's not too much more for me to say about the story. It speaks for itself pretty well. So with that, I'm going to wrap the episode up here. So as always, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed listening to this as much as I enjoyed making it. It was fun to go in sort of a new direction with the stories, so I hope you enjoyed that too. If you have any ideas for stories or monsters, or if I've gotten something horribly wrong and made a big mistake, then uh, shoot me an email. It's in the description, and I'll be happy to address that and maybe put that into the show for the next episode, our next available episode. Uh, And of course, share this around with everyone you know. The more listeners, the better. And that is all. So I've been Kyle. This has been the show, and I will see you next time. Bye-bye.